When are we gonna talk about us? Hello, welcome to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM. I'm Patricia McLean, founder and president of the Maine-based nonprofit organization, Finding Our Voices, which is survivors of domestic abuse, including me, standing proud and speaking loud. You pretty much feel like an alien, you know, you feel like it's just happening to you and it couldn't possibly be happening to the lady next door because they they look a certain way. They look like they have their act together. When I was continuing through um, the divorce side of things and he was coming to the court in chains and, you know, his uniform from the jail or whatever, there was a girl that would come and wait. It was very weird. And I, at one point, was like, I went over to her in the hallway and I said, why are you here? I said, don't you know that you're an inc- you're going to be in incredible danger? He is not worth waiting for. You need to take everything you can, any money, any possessions, anything you can, and get out now. My guest today is Emily Dillon a law student in Boston. Welcome, Emily. Emily, thank you very much. I know how busy you are, so I really appreciate this. Could we kind of start at the beginning? And could you just let me know where you were in your life when you met this individual? Sure. So I met my ex during what was a very dark period of my life, or at least at that time, I certainly thought it was. I had recently moved home halfway through my college education, and at 20, I was hanging out with people that were significantly older than I was. Um, These individuals were established, they were living on their own or with partners, and I had kind of adopted the mentality at that point that college just wasn't in my cards. I figured I'd do the next best thing instead, which to me at that time was to find a relationship and settle down like my peers were. And compounded with that, I also had incredibly low self-esteem because I had never received much in the way of romantic attention prior to that. Like I had had, you know, a boyfriend here or there, but nothing significant. Um, So desperate was definitely the word to describe me at that point in every way. And you said that you were 20? I was, yep. And could we just touch on your upbringing? There was no history of domestic violence in my family or anything like that. Um, that would have brought all of this on. It was more just kind of how I viewed myself, if that makes sense. Yes. And so you were 20. And where did you meet him? When I met him, we were both working in the same restaurant. That is what I did when I moved back home after leaving school. He was 17 when we met. Uh, Like most restaurants, we were a pretty tightly knit staff. And we spent a good good amount of time partying together, both after shifts and on our days off. When you first got to know him, did you have any idea that this could become a romantic thing? Um, not really. I mean, yes and no. We had good conversations. We got along really well. But I wouldn't say that, you know, there were sparks flying or anything. Well, it certainly wasn't love or lust at first sight by any stretch of the imagination. And so can you tell me how it proceeded as far as intimate partner relationship? It wasn't until close to his 18th birthday that 
anything really started to happen. And, you know, then I'd notice, to use an old school term, had put the moves on me, had sit closer to me, had tried flirting with me, things like that. And I gave in. So that's kind of how that slowly started to evolve. When you say partying, what kind of partying are we talking about? Oh, gosh. Kid stuff. Drinking, pot smoking, nothing like we weren't into hard drugs or anything like that, but would go to concerts together and, you know, again, do what kids do. Um, he was very much what I would call a pothead. Um, he smoked an awful lot of marijuana. Um, I didn't smoke nearly as much, but I did. I did enjoy a good party back in those days. Did he have a friends? And also, what did he tell you about any former girlfriends? Um, there were... Again, sort of a red flag. There was that one crazy ex-girlfriend, right? And anytime her name would come up, oh, she was crazy. She was insane. She was this, she was that. She was always the problem. Um, of course, years later, I found out that she was an absolutely lovely person. And another red flag that I should have noticed was the fact that all of his friendships were sort of like our relationship was very much built on convenience. Like people that just kind of partied and had free associations together rather than having any sort of real connection that was built on anything substantial. There was no emotional connection between him and his friends whatsoever. Did he have, was he close to his family? Um, he was close to his mother. He was not close to his father. They had a very strained, very difficult relationship. Um, there was some intimate partner violence issues between his parents. So I know that he had definitely observed a lot of that growing up and he did, you know, it's not to say that we didn't have any sort of emotional connection. He did tell me about those sorts of things. And, you know, there was some intimacy there in that way. Um, but yes, he was close with his mother. And can you tell me about when you started to really see red flags and how it sort of proceeded to where it was abuse? He wanted to be, I guess what the kids would call now, like casual friends with benefits or something like that. And I said, no, I want a real relationship. Like, I want this to have some legitimacy to it. I would say that the first real big red flag that I should have walked away from at the time and didn't happened probably a few months in. I had uh, caught him talking to other girls online when I borrowed his laptop to use. And we had a massive verbal argument. It um, eventually escalated to the point that he smashed his own laptop literally picked it up and just threw it on the floor and the whole thing exploded. I mean, you know, a couple grand's worth of technology and he just blew it up like it was nothing. Um, so this, as time went on, this would become an ongoing trend, both the, the idea of like a destruction of property sort of scenario, right? Like there were many holes put in the walls throughout the span of our five years together, that sort of thing. Um, but also his trying to cheat. And I do realize now looking back, that I think some of that was because I did kind of strong arm him into something he didn't want. So cheating. I mean, a lot of times these guys are cheaters and liars. So that's kind of classic. Yeah. And then also the destruction of property and the holes in the walls, you know, that's intimidation. And, and sometimes it, the guy's not going to, doesn't hit you, but he hits, he, he's physical with things around you, which is right. is frightening. And it, it makes you afraid of him. And that's what modifies our behavior, right? I can control the space around you. Watch how easily I can control you. And instill fear in you. Like it's interesting. The power and control will says physical violence, but it doesn't need to be physical to you. It could just be violence. Can you tell me more about how it 
it, it like in the beginning, what percentage of time was good times and then how that altered, you know, as far as good times and then not good times? Sure. So it was definitely sort of a creeping sort of invidious pattern, right? Like at first it would be every other week that we would have a fight. And it started to become like these small things of, oh, you told me that you were leaving work an hour ago. You still haven't left work. Where are you? And then it would blow up to, into this huge fight. And it got to the point where I noticed that I would start to forego some of my responsibilities to appease him, right? So using work as the perfect example, like I knew that I would still have stuff to do before I could go home for the night and I would blow it off so that I could go see him and not end up in trouble in the long term trouble being in quotation marks, of course. Um, I can't remember, looking back, the first incident of physical abuse that happened between us. Um, unfortunately, there were many, but it's kind of funny because at this point, there's only two that really stand out and they happened probably within the last year that we were together. Um, other than that, I mean, it, it was all just kind of a blur. I, I do remember a lot of damaged property, holes in the walls. I remember lots of screaming. I remember a good portion of sexual abuse out of him. Um, that I think in a lot of ways was more his preferred MO over physical abuse. He didn't necessarily hit me. He would coerce me into sex. He would make me do things that I didn't want to do. Um, it was always, it was always some new kink with him too, right? So like the bar was continuously raised. What you're describing could very well be that he was very young. He was only in his late teens when you were with him. And maybe uh, now in his late tw 20s, the women he's with are being subjected to physical violence more. But if we could just get a little few more details about these things, for instance, uh, damage of property. Did he d destroy your property and what kind of destruction are we talking about? He never really destroyed my property. There were several computers that were broken over the span of the time that we were together. Obviously, again, based on attempts to cheat, things like that. There were broken cell phones. When you say, um, are you there saying were holes he, in the wall. Are we saying he broke your cell phone or his? his? Um, he broke his. The nice part was he tended to leave my own property alone, which was a beautiful thing. Um, but, you know, there were incidents incidences where he would steal like books from me when I would be reading books and not paying attention to him. And also to me, the, thinking about someone destroying his own cell phone, like that's really scary. So the fact that he's destroying yeah. his own doesn't make it any better because someone who's going to destroy their own phone, that, that's a really scary person. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, again, with him, the violence was more targeted towards things he could destroy sexual abuse towards me, and then very much a pattern of coercive control. So looking back on it, that is what I see the most. That is what I remember the most, at least for the two to three year span during the middle of our relationship. For example, he prevented me from going back to school. I went back to school and he slowly started to kind of put the screws into that to cause me to drop back out. Um, we moved in together about a year into the relationship and he slowly started isolating me from all of my friends, my family, um, you know, the textbook stuff. Um, at one point, probably about three years into our relationship, my car broke down and he talked me into not getting a new one. So instead of me getting my own car, we shared one, which was his. Well, how did that control you? Oh God. I mean, at that point I was basically under his thumb, right? Like, 
I was completely at his beck and call. If I needed to go anywhere, it was either he had to drive me or I needed to beg him to take the car myself, which I'm sure he loved. Um, he controlled everywhere I went. And if my friends were willing to take me somewhere, and by that point, most of my friends were all just people that I worked with. I didn't have any friends outside of that sort of dynamic. Um, you know, it would be, when are you coming home? Blowing up the cell phone, texting me all the time, calling me all the time, not trusting where I was, not trusting who I was with. I mean, it was almost like living with, you know, your father when you're a young child, always having to be held accountable as to your comings and goings. It was not pretty. And so tell me about the school thing. Could you come into details about how he pre prevented or hampered you from being in school? Yeah, so... I don't even know what came over me. It was right about the time that I had just moved back in with him. And I decided that I was going to go back to school to become a paralegal, get my paralegal certificate. I had always wanted to be an attorney. And I realized that the restaurant business was not working out for me. And I just, I felt very lost. So I enrolled in the local community college and I made it through about half of a semester before he started to make my life living hell. And again, it was kind of that overarching pattern of control of, when are you going to be here? Oh, we need to do X, Y, and Z. We can't study, right? Like, why are you ignoring me to study your, your schoolwork instead? Things like that. Um, one of the books that he destroyed was one of my textbooks for class. Um, that kind of thing. So eventually, since we were living together, it became easier for me to just say, you know what, forget it. I'm not going to do this. I, I can't do it because it, it, it's just not going to work out. I mean, when I would stand up for myself in those days, there was always the threat of violence. Like he had been physically abusive to me prior to then. I knew that that was always something that he had in his toolbox, so to speak. And it was really scary for me when he would start to rage because he'd get all up in my face and you know the pattern. You'd be terrified that the next thing you know, it was going to be his fist, your head, his hand, your head you know, any part of my body making contact with something that it shouldn't, in other words. Was there, like, I remember, like, a switch being flipped, and you do everything you can so the switch isn't flipped, a sort of Jekyll and Hyde thing. Was that di same dynamic? Oh, yeah. I it got to the point where I could come home for the day, no matter what time of day, and immediately gauge his mood, right? Like, I knew the second he wouldn't even have to be in the area of the house that where the front door was. I could just walk in and tell from the way the air felt what kind of night I was going to have. Was it going to be peaceful? Was it going to be this? Was it going to be that? When his friends were around, things were good. And that was the other part. It's funny that you call it the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. When his friends were around, he was on his best behavior. Nobody knew how I lived when they weren't around, right? Um, his parents did, but again, because they had seen so much of that dynamic with themselves, it was just kind of like, oh, this is how it is. This is what you signed up for. Yeah, this is just what a, this is, it was kind of presented to me in a really screwed up way of like, this is what a woman tolerates, right? This is what you're supposed to take, in other words. So, and, and just like, I realized this later, like think of all the time and energy and brain power we're using to manage their moods and think about uh, to the detriment of developing our own selves or having our own life. Like, isn't that true? Yes, yes. And 
in hindsight, that was one of my biggest regrets. I mean, I gave this guy for what, what is for a lot of women, right? The most formative years of their life in a way. I gave him most of my early to mid twenties and I missed out on a lot by doing so. I, when the times were good, I did have a lot of fun. You know, we did get along great. We were friends, but at the same time, he took so much from me. Like I, it took me ages to get back to school. When I did, I felt very behind the eight ball, right? I didn't have a career. I didn't, I watched all of my peers getting married and having babies on Facebook. And here I was trapped in this abuse. It was, I'm angry about that still, but what can you do? Did your mother, did his mother ever witness the abuse and how did she react to that? <laughs> yeah, actually. So I had previously mentioned that there are two incidents that really stand out. One of them was an incident in which he strangled me in a closet. Um, I don't even remember what prompted it. I know that we had been fighting. He had a tendency to follow me around the house when we would get in an argument, right? Like I couldn't get away. There was no like boxing bell that would ding and would go to our separate corners and calm down. So he had followed me upstairs into one of the bedrooms and started as always raging in my face. And before I knew it, his hands were around my neck. Um, and I was, I was terrified. I looked into his eyes and whoever I thought he was, was no longer there. Mm -hmm. It was, there was nobody, oh, there can, was nobody home. I can relate to that. Yeah. Yep. I thought I really did. I thought in that moment, genuinely that I was going to die. And all of a sudden his mother threw the bedroom door open and came barging in. God only knows what it looked like to her and pulled him off of me. Um, there were many more incidences like that. That is one that truly sticks out. I can still, I still think about it to this day. What, let me guess. His eyes were black. Yep. Exactly right. Yep. And what color were they normally? Dark brown. Yep. And also the mother pulls him off you. What is said? What is said from, to the mother to you? What is said to the mother to him? What happens with that? So... <laughs> She didn't really say much to me. I mean, at that point, I kind of fell on the floor and was like, holy what just happened, right? Pardon my French. Um, and she's yelling at him that you don't do that. You don't do that. What's gotten into you? So on and so forth. But that was the extent of the action. And for me, I realized in that moment, and again, this happened very, very late in our relationship. This was one of the catalysts to me getting out. I realized that I was in a house in which nobody was on my side. Because that was a situation where point blank, the police should have been called. They weren't. I knew that if I called the police, I was going to be kicked out. And at that point, I, uh, I had been hiding the abuse for years. Nobody knew what I was up against, or at least they didn't know it from me. They may have figured it out on their own. Um, so I realized that my hands were tied. And that was one of the few times I think that we actually did go our separate ways and cool off. And I got a talking to from her about how she has just withstood it from his father all these years. And that, that was that there was no real resolution. So when you said you would have been kicked out, you were sharing the apartment where you both paying rent. Mm, yes. But it was when you were renting it from the mother. Yeah. So we shared a house with his family. Um, that's kind of a complicated and convoluted story that quite frankly, I don't think we have time for in this segment, but I had moved in about a year into the relationship 
primarily in response to his own abuse and his own alienation of me from my own family. Um, so I, I moved in under the guise that we were eventually going to get our own place and move out. And then when you know it, four years later, we were still living there. So does that, that must have, so that served to trap you too, the fact that you were living there and you felt, you said you felt you would be kicked out. What do you mean? You had, you felt you had no place to go if, if the mother had moved out? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at that point, you know, my, my, it's funny because my mother didn't, I've been free of this relationship for about six years now, right? It started almost 11 years ago and I didn't tell my mother until this past year what had actually transpired. She still doesn't know all the details. Um, so I'm sure that my parents had that parental instinct of something's not right here. Something's really off, but it was never once confirmed to me. And I did, I did, I did everything I could to hide it. And it really strained our relationship. Our relationship was really, really bad in those days. Um, so even if, you know, even I knew I could always go home, you know, I wasn't one of those children that felt that they could never go back to their parents. That wasn't the case at all. But I wasn't willing yet to take the humbling experience of having to call my mom and dad and saying, hey, I really need your help. Um, that didn't come until about six months later. So can we talk okay. about sexual abuse? What was that? As much detail as you want to give about that. Yeah, I mean, that was just <laughs> so looking back, right, it's kind of silly. I was his first. So I had kind of chalked it up at that time of like. Oh, he was a virgin. Of course he wants to have sex all the time. Like insatiable. Looking back now, knowing what I do, definitely a sex addict, right? Because he was chasing every woman he could get under the sun. Um, he would coerce me into sex regardless of the time, place, day, you name it. Um, sex acts that I didn't want to perform. And then as time went on, it became, again, like I said, the bar was continuously raised. So I would meet one benchmark. And before you know it, he was coming up with something else that he wanted to try. And I'll spare some of the details on that. Um, and by the end, another one of the sort of bridge burning situations for me was that I actually caught him on a website called Backpage, which is almost like a CD or Craigslist, if you could imagine that. And he was looking for um, hookers. Um, transsexual hookers would you say that he was a porn addict mm -hmm. yep the day that i left he had a real very realistic sex doll delivered to the house i was moving out and that was the special delivery on the front doorstep very much a don't ask don't tell sort of situation as time went on it got to the point that i frankly did not want to know right not only was it painful to me emotionally but it was just I think it was kind of a shutdown. Like I didn't want to know because it was a means of protecting myself. What I didn't know couldn't hurt me. How old was he when you left him? Probably 23. Could you friggin' imagine a third, this guy at 30, what he's into? No, I don't want to know. I am, I consider myself very lucky that quite frankly, I don't have to find out and it's not my problem. And I hope that no other woman does. Hello. You are listening to Let's Talk About It on WERU-FM, Conversations with Survivors of Domestic Abuse. And I am your host, Patricia McLean, founder, president of Finding Our Voices, which is at findingourvoices.net. Let's return now 
to my conversation with University of Massachusetts law student, Emily Dillon. And the whole thing about the wanting to have sex all the time, when you were, am I correct that you were probably trying to appease him, but that was uh, uncomfortable for you? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, you know, I was, again, at that point I was working in restaurants. I could work a 12, 13 hour day, get home, feel disgusting, look disgusting, being he would still be trying to have sex and would not take no for an answer. And then almost like a petulant child, if I said no, he would fly off into one of his rages. So it, after a while, that conditioning, it became easier for me to just kind of say, yes, get it over with, right? And then know that at least I would be safe or at least we would have a quiet and peaceful evening, which is terrible to think about now. That is really, I think, coming down to the crux of it is what happens is you're just giving away piece after piece of your soul in order to appease. And you think you're keeping the peace, but actually it's doing the opposite. For me, looking back, like I enabled it because each time I said yes, then it just fed the monster. Yep. Yep. And again, it's like those ever moving fence posts. You say yes to one thing and the next thing you know, the yes is going to take more and more from you. And I think that not honoring that boundary and not seeing the red flags as they arise and just saying, oh, well, it'll get better. Oh, it's just this once is part of what started to trap, at least me personally, I can't speak for everybody. That's what trapped me in that cycle, right? Was thinking like, oh, it won't always be this way. But unfortunately it is, and it's only going to get worse. I think it just really takes the courage to realize this, this isn't for me. I need to leave now, right? Before it does. And also just to realize you are not keeping the peace. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And it's funny too, because looking back, looking back now at what I do, somebody asked me, Oh, what's your definition of domestic violence? And really for me, it's as simple as Anything, anytime you have a situation in which you wouldn't tell anybody else in your life about what's going on in your relationship, you're looking at DV. The second you start feeling like you need to hide your relationship from other people and what happens within it, you're looking at a DV situation, if not now, soon to become one. It's been so normalized to me that these guys will just say the most horrible things, you know, but isn't that true? Like if you, if, most, a lot of women who are with normal partners and vice versa, it, never in a million years would that partner say, I'm, uh, I'm going to burn the house down if you don't do this or that. That was never one I faced, but I did face my fair share of threats on my life. And, you know, in the moment, you believe it. And that, that kind of circles back to that pattern of control, right? You believe it enough that you're willing to do whatever it takes to make the threat stop. He strangled you. So yes, he says he's going to kill you. You believe he's going to kill you because he almost did kill you. Right. Yep. Yep. That wasn't the first time, unfortunately, that that had happened. That that is just the one that stands out the most because his mother had to be involved. Right. And I think at that point too, in a way that was that and everything that was happening at that time was sort of my come to Jesus moment of like, this is a lost cause. This is never going to get better. This is the end of the road and you can see where the road's leading. Was there a, a sort of a makeup thing where he would cry and beg you and apologize and beg you not to leave? Did that happen? Yep, that happened all the time. I wasn't usually brave enough to threaten to leave, I will admit it. Um, so it wasn't so much the begging me not to go. It was more the 
crying. This will never happen again. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm a screw up. Obviously, harsher words were used there. I don't know what's wrong with me. I need help. But then help would never be sought. Things along those lines. And, you know, in that moment, we're human. We feel we feel bad for people, right? Like, I thought that this person was my partner. So I truly did feel bad. And I truly did feel as though when he would do those things that he truly did love me, right? And that it was as simple as he's just a damaged person. And so am I. And did he, like my ex would always, when it came to it, like when I, he would say, I'm going to, we have this friend who's a psychologist, Larry Starr. And he would always say, I'm going to call Larry Starr. Like he would let me know that he's going to go get therapy. But then of course we'd get back together and he never would. He never once did. Yep. 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 Actually the person who ended up getting the therapy in our relationship was me twice. Um, so I'm glad I did. It was definitely what saved me in the long run. But at the same time, just the notion that, you know, here was this happy, reasonably healthy young woman getting herself therapy when she wasn't the one that needed therapy, right? Like I wasn't necessarily, did I need help? Yes, of course. But I wasn't the one between the two of us that should have been seeking it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Did you tell your therapist what was happening? No, nope. So what ended up happening was, oh gosh, this would have been 2015 in the winter. I had what was basically the equivalent of a nervous breakdown. I kind of reached my breaking point. Again, I had been high, I had been living what essentially felt like a double life, right? Like the people that knew me at work, my friends, my family knew a completely different person than who I, how I was actually living in my day-to-day life. And to maintain that facade took an awful lot of work and it took an awful lot of energy from me. Um, and, and I just, I reached my breaking point. I finally reached the point where one night I was up the entire night. I was crawling out of my skin. I was chain smoking cigarettes. I really thought that I was losing my mind. Like it was, it was bad. I realize now that it was probably what would we call the panic attack, but it was never ending. And I thought to myself, something has to give. Um, and about four o'clock that morning, I went online and started looking for places that I could seek help. What places did you look up and did you seek help from? So I started with looking at therapists and then I realized given where I lived, because, you know, I lived in a very seasonal area in the wintertime, there wasn't much, right? Not much happens in a seasonal location in the winter. So I ultimately ended up on the local hospitals website, looking for resources there. And I found a partial inpatient program and I thought this would be great, right? Because it doesn't carry the same stigma as going full on inpatient. would be covered my, by my insurance. And I, naive as I was, kind of looked at it as a way of, oh, I could check in, do this for a little while, and then be done with it, right? I wouldn't need to go back into therapy or anything like that. Wait a um, second. So are I you, called them. Are you, are, you looking, are you looking up domestic abuse resources or what resources were you looking up? No, I was looking up psychiatric resources. I thought that at that point, I still thought I was the problem. So did you even have the term in your mind, domestic abuse? No, nope. That actually, (laughs) that's a funny story. Put, put a pin in that because that came around about six months later, not even probably about four or five months later that I realized I was in an abusive relationship 
or at least was finally willing to admit it to myself. My issue was psychological. I had reached the point where I internalized so much of what I heard from my then partner that I thought truly that I was the problem, right? That I was the screwed up one, that I was the one with all these mental issues. And that because of that, that was why I deserved the abuse that I was getting. Um, so I started looking for psychiatric resources. And that's what led me to do, gosh, probably about five weeks of partial inpatient. I was diagnosed with what would later be called situational depression and anxiety, which <laughs> no surprise. But even then, I wouldn't talk. I was like Fort Knox. They couldn't get me to tell them what was really going on. Do you remember oh. why you weren't, weren't, weren't giving it up? Were you trying to protect his, his name or? No, I, you know, I think honestly, at that point, I was just so afraid of what the consequences would be. And it wasn't just the consequences for him. I think there was an element of personal pride involved in that too. I'm, I'm not too proud to admit it now. I think it was my own ego, right? Of like, what are people going to think about me? What will people think when they find out the truth of this relationship that this is how I live, right? Like, what will my parents think? They're, they're going to be so disappointed in me. Was there part of it, like, what would people think, like, to, that I'm so weak that, well, was it shame? I'm so weak that I'm letting be, myself be treated this way? Was that it? There was definitely some shame involved, yes. And I think, too, that it was just, you know, at that point, my pride was really all I had left. And it wasn't so much just people wondering, oh, why didn't she leave? Why is she putting up with this? But I think it was letting people know that I was flawed in some way, shape or form, right? Like, I was such, still am in a lot of ways, such a perfectionist that for me to show any form of weakness or vulnerability was just completely unacceptable. Were you a perfectionist all growing up? Is that, would you characterize yourself that way? No, actually, that didn't come out until my parents would say it was exactly the opposite. <laughs> that didn't come out until the abuse. Um, I don't know what it was that kind of brought it out in me, but I became very obsessed with appearances, not just with how I looked, but how I was perceived by others. Right. And I think that that was part of that, like plate balancing routine that I was trying to do of keeping all my plates stacked up on the stick so that they didn't go tumbling down. So let me know, let's, let's hear how you escaped. And then I also want to hear when you first <laughs> realized that this was domestic abuse. Sure. So Oh, gosh. So I'll start with what, how I first realized it was domestic abuse, because that happened first. Um, we so we were still sharing a car. It was the summer of 2015. He was working a seasonal job at that point. I won't say what it was, but our routine was such that I would take him to work in the morning, have like an hour or so to myself and then go to my own job. And then I got out a few hours before he did. So I would then go pick him up at night. So that morning, we had been at each other the entire morning, just fighting, bickering, you name it. He was in a sour mood. I could tell from the second he got up. Um, and I was just like, all I need to do is get him to work. Once I get him to work, it's over. He lives 20 minutes. He works 20 minutes from the house. I'll be fine. Right. So he insists on driving. We get in the car and he starts raging and he slaps me on the leg and I'm wearing shorts and he slapped me so hard that it left a perfectly formed handprint. Um, <laughs> and it was the first time that it really dawned on me. Like at that point, what was going, he had left marks before, but like truly his entire palm 
was on my leg. And I don't know what possessed me. I took my phone out and I took a picture of it. And I went back to the house and we lived in a bad neighborhood. And it, as it were, there was a television that we would leave running to give people the impression that someone was home. And I came into Oprah on TV talking to an expert about the warning signs of domestic violence. And I stood at the front door mentally checking off every, nope. I kid you not, it was the most bizarre moment of my life. All the hair on the back of my neck stood up because I was standing there like with this handprint still on my leg about half an hour later, a photo of it on my phone. And here's Oprah talking about DV with somebody on the television. And I'm sitting there checking every single box of the warning signs of abuse. And in that moment, it was like something out of a freaking movie. I mean, it just hit me all at once of like, this is what it is. This is what you've been running from. This is what you refuse to tell people, right? Like the whole time I knew our relationship was what it was. That's why I wouldn't tell anybody, but I didn't want to admit it to myself. And finally, in the way that the universe does, there it was just staring me in the face. I couldn't pretend otherwise anymore. It was, it was something else. Very powerful. Finally caught up with me. So after that happened, right, oh gosh, that was probably in the middle of the summer, I realized that I was going to have to get out. I didn't know how. I was still a young kid, still an idiot, still very prideful, so I wouldn't go seeking any resources. I wouldn't go to DV shelters or anything like that. Um, the strangulation incident happened. That was another sign to me of like, you really need to get out. And I started biding my time. Um, in October of 2015, I checked myself back into that same partial inpatient program, except this time I did it because it was the only safe place for me to think, right? It was the only place when I, I had recognized the prior winter that when I was in that program, he left me alone, right? Like he treated me with kids gloves at that time. It was probably the most blissful time of our entire relationship. So I checked in back in under the guise of needing additional help help. But the truth was at that point that I was doing it to come to terms with what happened to me in a safe space and to figure out how I was going to escape. And it was the only place at that time that I could really think of that would allow me the room to do that without creating stigma, which is interesting because I chose mental health stigma over what I perceived to be the stigma of abuse. Right. Um, so I did that and then I started to slowly formulate a plan, but I lost my nerve. And then one day, I'll never forget it. It was the last day of January, 2016. He had had friends over for the night. You know, we were drinking, whatever. And he left to take them home. And I was sitting on the couch by myself, waiting for him to get back. And it was like somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I'm like, what the hell's going on? And before I know it, there's like this voice deep inside that's like, tonight's the night. And I'm sitting there like, holy cow, are you kidding? Tonight, I have no plans. I have nowhere to go. I haven't told anybody, like, no, 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 no. Right. 10 minutes later, he gets home, he sits down. We have, we make small talk and I don't even know what came over me, but I said, you know, I've been thinking we need to take a break. And before I could even like formulate what I was saying, I had framed it in a way of like, I'm leaving because you clearly want to pursue other women. Again, I kind of went that route and I'm like, you deserve, and I made it all about him, flattery. Like you deserve the opportunity to go have experiences with other women. It's clearly what you want. I'm the one that's holding you back, blah, 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 blah. And he was fine with it. It was the most bizarre thing. I don't, 
again, like there, it was like divine providence. I swear to God, like, because under normal situation, he never would have reacted that way. He was perfectly calm. Like, yeah, you're right. We should take a break. I should be able to go out and pursue who I want and sleep with who I want without you weighing me down. And that's exactly how I framed it. Um, so the next day I called my parents and I said, Hey, I'm going to be moving out. Can I come stay with you? They said, yes. We made arrangements for them to pick me up the following Saturday. So about a week later. And again, another weird, bizarre incident of divine timing. Um, I spent that week working, packing up my stuff at the place. And as the week went on, the cracks started to show, right? So what was him thinking was a great idea slowly became I'm losing my source of supply. And he started to get testier and testier. And I'll never forget it. I went to bed that Tuesday night, like, I'm not going to make it to Saturday. Like, we are going to have a big, big incident. I started to get very scared because everything I said he was snapping at, he hadn't gotten physically violent yet, but I knew it was on the horizon. And I'm like, I'm not going to make it out. Like, I don't think I can hold on until then. And when you know it, the next day my dad calls and he says, there's supposed to be a huge blizzard on Saturday. I'm going to come pick you up on Friday instead. And I'm like, all right, he goes, is that okay? Can you be ready? I'm like, of course I can be ready. It It was the strangest thing. So I told the ex that, and he was so taken off guard that he couldn't even react. Like it literally threw him so far off of his game that for two days we existed in relative peace again Um, until the day of, of course, which was not a good day, fights all day long. Um, And then my father came and picked me up. And after I got everything into the car, I get into the car and we're backing out of the driveway. And Sweet Home Alabama comes on the radio. And I'm like, wouldn't you freaking know it? It was so bizarre. Because I'm looking at this house that was basically like my torture chamber for five years, right? And I'm in the car with my dad. And all of a sudden, I just realized that everything was going to be okay. It was going to take a long time, but everything was going to be fine. Um, so it was one of those moments that is emotional. It, it, made me, it still makes me emotional to think about today. I, I almost had to laugh because wouldn't you know it, right? Like sitting in the car with my father, listening to Sweet Home Alabama, driving back to my parents' house where I should have been the entire time. Um, Again, just one of those weird little coincidences. And wouldn't you know it too, the snowstorm the next day, we got like half an inch. They had predicted like a foot of snow for us and we got half an inch. So somebody, somebody was definitely looking out for me to get me out of that relationship because things just lined up a little too conveniently for it all to go the way it did. I got very lucky. Let me know what, where you are now, just as far as what you're, what you're studying for and where you are in your career track. Sure. So I went back to school. I got my associates. I was planning on being a CPA because I was working in a tax office at that time. Um, realized once I started going to finish my bachelor's that if I was going to put all the commitment into getting my CPA license, I might as well go to law school. I had always wanted to do it. Right. So I decided instead that I was going to switch gears, decided to go to law school, thought I was going to be a tax attorney and was out on a walk one day when it hit me that I could work with survivors of domestic violence instead. And I could take what really crappy thing happened to me and use it to make somebody else's life better and help. Um, So that was kind of the fuel to the fire and it pushed me through the LSAT into getting into law school, so on and so forth. I am now a second year JD MSW candidate. So I'm one year out from finishing law school, going for my master's in social work as well. 
And I have done a heck of a lot of work for somebody that's only in their second year. Um, I am the Law Student Division Liaison to the American Bar Association's Commission on Domestic and Sexual Violence. I helped, helped being in quotes because I wasn't able to contribute very substantively to the introduction of a bill that's currently before the Mass State Legislature that's affording employment protections to survivors of domestic violence. I spent the summer interning at a state rep's office in Boston, um, where I worked exclusively on SDB legislation, two of which are national initiatives, the Sexual Assault Survivors Bill of Rights and the Phoenix Act, which started in California and extends the statute of limitations for people that are facing DV situations. It also actually adds coercive control into the statutory definition of domestic violence for the state, which is pretty cool, especially for somebody like me who that was a big part of what I lived through. Um, and then as of last week, I just represented my first client in court and we won. Awesome. So, <laughs> so it, it has a happy ending. It, it took a damn long time to get there. It has a happy ending. Um, I wish I could say that after, you know, after I moved home with my parents, it was all over, but it wasn't. He stalked me at work. Um, my boss threatened to get a restraining order from the business one day because he kept showing up and wouldn't take no for an answer. And again, that was kind of the turning point for me of like, you can really talk about this. Like as much as you tried to hide it, everybody knows, right? And people are willing to stand up for you, which at that point I had thought nobody was. Um, so when I had the opportunity to work on that bill about the employment protections, that was near and dear to my heart because that was one of my biggest fears was that I was going to lose my job because of the abuse and I was going to be screwed. So that was very much a personal project for me, and I hope to hell it passes. <laughs> Thank you, Emily. If what we are talking about today sounds familiar, say something to someone. In Maine, the 24-7 Domestic Abuse Hotline, where advocates believe you and understand it, is at 1-866-834-HELP. You can connect to the sisterhood of survivors that is Finding Our Voices at findingourvoices.net. And you can get in touch with me at hello at findingourvoices.net. Through the month of March, you can see my photo portraits of 43 Maine women who once were trapped and silent and now are free and speaking loud on posters and bookmarks in the Finding Our Voices survivor-powered outreach. All this in an exhibit at the Camden Public Library. The photo portraits are of survivors of domestic abuse aged 18 to 81, including a prisoner and the governor of Maine, Janet T. Mills, plus documentation of abuse that some of us transcended collected in one place to celebrate the three-year anniversary of Finding Our Voices. We were 14 survivors in the library exhibit that launched our nonprofit in 2019, and now we are 43. Come talk with us March 25th for the opening reception at the Camden Public Library, 4 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. That evening, 7.30 p.m. at the Camden Opera House, is a benefit concert by Jackie McLean, who was one of the survivors in our project 
reference abuse by a father, and who is also my daughter. She will be on stage with her band Roan Yellowthorn. The opening act is Gentle Temper. Check out the Camden Opera House website to see if there are still tickets available, because this is one concert and evening you will not want to miss. In honor of the many voices in Finding Our Voices, I'm going to close this episode with some of them and ending with a song by Jackie. Hope to see you March 25th. Take good care. And remember, love should feel good. Well, I remember the first time very clearly. He was angry about um, something. And I heard him say, I could burn you with a cigarette and you wouldn't know it. And I just sat really still, not thinking that he would actually burn me with a cigarette, but he ended up um, putting the, the cherry of his cigarette on my neck. Not having him know where I was, being safe, it was huge. It's huge when you're laying there at nighttime and watching every car that goes by and being scared that it's him. I was raised by a very independent woman who was like, you say what you think and you don't, you don't need anybody around and you don't take crap from anybody. And that's kind of how I was. And all of that got taken away. I said, that's never going to happen to me. I'll never be that person. And I put up with all of it. I let him take everything away from me, including my personality. I know what happened overseas. I know what happened in Florida. I know what happened in Camden. I know what happened everywhere we lived together. At one time, he picked me up in a public place, a restaurant where there was music and dancing, and he threw me across the floor. I mean, flying through the air and then landed on oh the God. floor on my back. And, and at that time, there was somebody there that was very, very large and simply wrapped their arms around him and quickly walked him to the door and put him out of the place. But most of the time, people were afraid to intervene. It was one thing to throw things at me. It was one thing to call names, but you like he physically broke a body part. I went through a lot of different emotions afterwards. Like I went through intense rage and intense anger, and then I went through almost like a missing sadness. If I didn't right away change my phone number and like lose all my contacts, and I think I would have tried contacting him again. Everything was peachy at first. Once he realized that I was in a situation where I couldn't go home, that's when things really turned around. Just like with whores and pimps, you know, with prostitution. That's the object of the game, is you want, you want to find girls that are runaways, girls that can't go home, girls that are really strung out, you know, and the first thing you want to do is you want to separate them from everybody. There's some days that were really good days, and you have fun with that person, and then they apologize, and nothing happens for two weeks, and they said that they were sorry, and you think that everything's going to be okay, and then it happens again. He never physically assaulted me, but, but he tortured me psychologically. The DA came to me and she was like, listen, he, this is supposed to be a felony, but if we charge him with a felony, 
He's never going to get a job. He's never going to pay child support. And you're jeopardizing your safety by allowing him, by letting him getting charged with, get charged with a felony. He's going to hate you even more and he's going to have even more resentment towards you. So for your safety, we're recommending that you drop it down. Let us drop it down to a misdemeanor. I actually have a really hard time at night um, to this day because once the sun went down, there was always a chance something bad would happen. I wanted to die. I mean, that's how awful I felt. But I just said, take me away or show me the way. Show me the way. I used to say, and then there was one day, so I saw this dove over my head. And I fell into the deepest sleep I had slept in the longest time. I woke up in the morning, and I was on a mission from God. I went down and got plane tickets, bought two trunks, filled them up, took them to the train station, shipped them to America, and said to him, I was frightened to say, I'm leaving you and divorcing. I'm going to go home for a little while to clear my mind. Oh, what a beautiful day that was. Just freedom. Just like being reborn every day. Like you can wake up, you can breathe, you can go down and have a cup of coffee and sit by yourself and not worry if somebody's wondering who you're talking to, what you're doing, like, the ability to just sit there and just be free was amazing. Those three weeks where I had no contact with him, I felt so free. I slept so good. And I didn't feel like I was walking on eggshells in my own house anymore. And the kids were so happy. Everyone was just happy. It's only when you were away that you realized how bad it was. Yeah. You needed that time and space. I did. And I knew I would never go back to him. Never. What would you say to anybody who isn't stuck in a relationship where they're just walking on eggshells, feel beaten down, afraid? I would say you can get out. Even if you don't think you can, because I didn't think I could, you can. People will, you will find people to help you and to support you. There are resources out there. There are people who will help you when you try to leave. And I know I was made to feel like nobody would help me and that there was no way out, but there's always a way out when you're ready to take it. It's so simple and it's so easy, you know, but it, but it's also the hardest thing to do is to give yourself permission to live a happy life. And it just, you just have to decide that you're worth that.